Good afternoon, good evening, good night. Welcome to Lame Ducks. London deemed unfit for human consumption. Angsty teen pens Oscar-winning screenplay. Palestine and Israel downgrade relations to It's Complicated. A in Seoul, scientists have successfully managed to mate the world's last known pair of Liberal Democrats. I had to dress as Danny Alexander for two weeks. It was humiliating, but worth it to preserve the future of the species. Al-Qaeda to close London headquarters over soaring rent prices. Your mother's marble cake recipe nearly perfected. No signs of diplomatic thaw over ongoing stalemate with that racist uncle of yours. When approached for comment, Terry said, fuck Brussels and fuck your stupid fucking radio show. Now, following an unexpected yet voluntary departure from his high-flying career in late 2016, former PR director David Cameron searches for a new, fulfilling career to occupy his time and not inconsiderable talents in a new series called Dave Decides, An Ordinary Man on the Hunt for an Extraordinary Job. Hello, my name's Dave Cameron, and I used to be a student at Oxford University. I wanted to spend more time focusing on my hobbies, like the Smiths and my wife. I decided to leave my hectic job in London and look for something more rewarding, more fulfilling to do. This decision was entirely voluntary. In the first episode of this series, I'm working as a gardener in the beautiful Tudor-style Old Deanery Garden here in Somerset. My old job saw me managing a hectic workplace, so I'm really enjoying the opportunity to work on my own. You know who's boss when you're working with a plant. Be you gay, Scottish, Polish or Muslim, one of the great privileges of this green and pleasant land is the opportunity to get out and enjoy the beautiful flora and fauna of our great United Kingdom. And it'll stay that way for years to come. So George Monbiot can bloody well keep his trap shut. Plants are predictable, easy to understand. You put the seeds in the ground, you water them, and they grow, yielding beautiful and or delicious foliage for human enjoyment. Plants don't spend six months telling YouGov they'll do one thing and then do the precise opposite on referendum day. They know their place. They respect order, tradition, hierarchy. But I'm building something now, something substantial and real. Record low unemployment among the ants. Every bee has the chance to buy its own cell in the hive. Everything is growing. Everything is thriving and prosperous. The bluebells have never been so blue, and the trees are starting to bud in time for spring. But 
Oh dear. Some tyke has thrown his bloody football into this wonderful Tudor-style garden I've spent all day pruning and preserving. You shan't get that back, you scamp! Boris! Sorry, old chum. Game of footy with the boys got a bit out of hand. Shan't bother you again. All right, our free kick. What are you doing? Oh, no! Oh, you spoiler! You've, you've bloody got and spoiled it all! Oh, you've spoiled my garden! Oh, not my blue... Oh, keep away from the beech tree! Oh, you've got it. Oh, David, he never does seem to get what he wants. Look out for him whenever we next write one of these episodes, which probably won't be soon. Nonetheless, we wonder what we'll be doing. And now, for the first of a series of interviews that seek to put a spotlight on other corners of the SOAS community. This is the serious part of the podcast. And I'm here today with Daniel Luther, who is a PhD student at SOAS. And I'll just let him introduce himself. Hi, so thank you for having me here. Um, and yeah, I'm a third year PhD, which means I have deadlines. <laughs> <laughs> I work on gender and sexuality and representation of uh, uh, same-sex literature um in Indian cinema and uh, contemporary literature in India but I am also one of the co-founders of Queer Asia which is this platform for um, queer and LGBT voices all over Asia to have a dialogue with each other and to create awareness and network over various issues that affect LGBT people in different parts of Asia. Or how did you come to start Queer Asia? What was the, what was the inspiration or we, in our different post-colonial locations or from our different post-colonial locations, we're constantly having a debate with the West rather than having uh, discussions with each other to try and learn from our own experiences. So we felt that there must be, there needs to be a forum for where we can have a dialogue with each other rather than, you know, a triangular sort of dialogue. Yeah, we decided, we, we searched actually and we couldn't find much. And so then we decided, why don't we have a conference? So we thought we'll just have a really small, tiny conference with just um, scholars from around uh, the area working on different things. But then when we put out the call, it became so popular that we had like over 500 people come to the conference. Do you find SOAS kind of an encouraging environment for this kind of activism? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what one of the things that I really love about SOAS is the fact that there are just so many people from so many different areas and they're all working on things that are really interesting or exciting and that SOAS then tends to have this atmosphere that is not, you know, replicated any any other institution in, in the fact that it is so global and that it has so much going on in such a sm- small space so that you tend to meet people who are so amazing and, and, and that really helps, so like... Uh, we're inviting uh, Lee Meitzer from China to come over and give a talk, and she's one of the feminist five who were detained um, um, when uh, by the Chinese government for their activism. Lived in different places before. I guess if you could maybe explain activism you've done uh, either here in, in Britain or abroad, and you mentioned um, Singapore as well. Yeah. So um, I grew up in India, and then I moved to Singapore for my master's. Uh, but I lived in Singapore for about six and a half years. So in India, in Delhi, 
I was uh, an undergrad in the University of Delhi and we ran a newspaper called DU Beat, which is an independent newspaper. One of the things that I wanted to do was do a sex ed column for just university students because there is no like real sex ed initiative in India or there wasn't then. I imagine that was a bit controversial. As as the editor of that newspaper, me and another colleague, we were locked into a room by the student union and threatened for publishing these kinds of things saying that this is not again, this is against Indian culture. This is all very scandalous. You can't have all of those things. I've been followed home. But, you know, you persist nonetheless. But when we when I moved to Singapore, it was only Till in my later years, while I was there, that I was involved in activism, the diasporic members of the Indian community living in Singapore and talking to them about their experiences and just, you know, generally helping create awareness to uh, do some HIV AIDS stuff. Within the different communities of, of, of Singapore, they're the, the Mandarin speaking communities, the, the Malay, and then the, the, the ones from South Asia as well. Do you find that their queer experiences are, are different or is there some commonality? Or No, I, I definitely think that their queer experiences are very different. And I would say primarily because there is a sense of inbuilt racism within the communities, especially within the queer communities. Or, is it, or in the structure of Singaporean society in, No, in I, I think Singapore does tend to try and be very inclusive in terms of race. Yes, racism is a problem, as it is everywhere else. So I wouldn't say no to that. But I would say that there is ways in which the Singapore society does try to be inclusive. But what I meant by in terms of the queer communities is that um, there are just generally racial preferences in terms of who you date, who you sleep with, those kinds of things. And I think that is something that is very prevalent in the queer community. But I don't know if that's a specific Singapore thing as opposed to... Or something that might have been kind of is mimicking or has been imported from Western queer culture or... When someone at the water cooler asks you who Michael Pence is, what will you say? Though better known for Shania Twain and situation comedy Frasier, the past few weeks have seen the United States of America hit the headlines for all the wrong reasons. This fragile union, located in the north of the American continent, has become a hotbed of political turmoil. We visited the power base of the regime, the country's purpose-built capital, Washington City. The strong man at the center, Donald J. Trump. You probably recognize the name from one of America's wildly popular reality television shows. But what you might not know is that this man is now in charge. In a bewildering rigmarole costing billions of dollars and lasting over two years, known to locals as an election season, Trump emerged victorious. Some observers have questioned the validity of the result. They point to discrepancies between the actual number of votes cast and the number of electoral votes awarded to candidates under an obscure and antiquated electoral law. Others have questioned why dead people aren't granted the right to vote. They've paid their taxes, haven't they? To get a grip on the underlying politics, we spoke to Dr. Nigel Franklin Fuerteberger, 
Professor of Caribbean and Canadian Politics at the School of Occidental and American Studies. Well, I, I like to say that rather than there being a America, there's really two Americas. You see, it's really a, it's really a case of understanding that there are, there are two key interest groups that dominate politics over there in the north and the west, really around the, the coastal areas. There's been historically a lot of industrialization, a lot of contact with abroad. And so up there, the population is very much an urban, liberal, metropolitan, uh, secular sort. The second group are based in the more rural south, a much more traditional, conservative type, with their roots in the, roots in the old land and slaveholding classes. Crucially, though, this second group have held on to a really powerful ideology of socially conservative Protestant fundamentalism. And in this is the lot that have now managed to take power for themselves. The instability of the coming months will no doubt see this fractured state carved out by global superpowers seeking to cement their spheres of influence. The outgoing regime had seemed intent on opening politically and economically to Iran. But the incoming president opposes this policy, setting the stage for a diplomatic or military proxy conflict between movements loyal to Iran and figures in support of long-term Washington ally Saudi Arabia. The Wild Heartlands, increasingly governed by sectarian warlords, will fall to the might of China. Alaska, inhospitable and oil-rich, inhabited by savage Palinites, will return to Russia. Whether or not a benevolent and, thankfully, neoliberal Canada will adopt isolated city-states remains to be seen. As part of the public service remit of this programme, we carry a message from the Home Office. Always remember the importance of conformity. And now, for the interviews. I found myself, you know, my experiences of queer Asia have been in South Korea. And to be fair, it's been a few years since I've worked there. So it's probably changed quite a bit, yeah. as these communities uh, tend to do a lot. I think community, individual communities are always kind of trying to form themselves yeah. in the context of this kind of Western queer culture, which is very accessible online yeah. and, and just, yeah, in all sorts of ways yeah. in media. Just I, mean, I want to add something yeah. actually about the kinds of bodies we fetishize. And I think in Singapore, there is a preference or a prevalence because of the Western media experience to a certain kind of body. But, you know, that's very different from the kind of experiences I had when I was traveling in Indonesia or Thailand, where they watch a lot of Bollywood. The exposure to certain kinds of media does have uh, or plays a big part in the kind of ways in which we fetishize or, or prefer things. How did you hear about SOAS? I always knew about SOAS because I was doing a literature undergrad in um, Delhi. So I always knew about SOAS and uh, everything is so interesting over here and the kinds of research that are coming out from this university is just so, so interesting. So I felt like, you know, that would be a really good place to go to. And so that's why I applied to SOAS, and now I'm here. Do you have any ideas of future directions after SOAS? Queer Asia has taken on a very big uh, part of my time and has become this very full-time sort of thing that I'm doing. Um, not just me, but all the other people who are involved with Queer Asia. And we're a growing team of people, queer people, queeple. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always thought about 
possibly doing academia but you know at some point during my phd research i felt a bit disillusioned with the fact that you know academia tends to avoid talking to activism and that there needs to be big a, a greater amount of dialogue between the two not that i conceive of them as separate words but the way in which i was experiencing academia seemed to be you know so divorced from activism that it seemed like you know even in your own writing it it was it it's better to be um what what's the term neutral, kind of neutral and you know, like objective but academic. yeah academic but sometimes that voice while it works for different disciplines might not necessarily work for queer theory because it's engaged with so much affect and the real people's struggles are quite and their lived experiences yeah their lived experiences that you're negotiating with so it's harder to maintain that distance but then the the question does come up like why do we need to maintain this distance why is academia not a part of the way in which we interact with the world after my phd i do want to think of uh, uh, areas where i can continue to contribute but i don't want to be not producing research because i do find that very interesting and so we're launching a crowd we've actually launched a crowdfunding campaign so plug plug uh-huh. uh go to go ahead and look at our crowdfunding campaign and feel free to share it uh, um, which was and which it's um, you can find it on um, uh, hubhub.net if you look for the soas uh, hubhub.net part um and but do please share it with everyone who might be interested in giving or might be interested in sharing it yeah yes yeah also since you yourself have been involved in kind of activism throughout uh your life in different places would you have any i guess kind of general advice to people who are, are who are listening who uh, have either been involved and have kind of gone into other things or 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 really want to be involved i'm sorry this is a very general question no. especially especially queer people yeah. of, of color yeah no i think you're right i mean i don't have advice as such but what i do have maybe your comments about it uh, i think that because of my experiences and because of you know harassment or bullying and those kinds of things i feel very strongly about this and so for me that has become part and parcel of my identity but that doesn't mean that that's the same case for everyone else and as a queer person of color i've experienced that in different forms not just in the uk where it's a different kind of uh, problem that you face but also in singapore where uh, being a queer person of color from india is is another different kind of experience when you're living as a minority within a different nation state that has a ethnic majority so i i think that it it does matter in the ways in which you decide to engage with it but one thing that i would recommend is not sitting back and letting things just you know happen to you rather being doing whatever you can to make a difference in whatever way and now a special report from our soas correspondent the headlines scream marking crisis reaches new apex soas administrators powerless to cut essay turnaround times is it acceptable that student essays the product of countless minutes of academic inquiry should be subject to turnaround times in excess of 14 days with the mainstream media unwilling or should that be unable to do anything i rick treadwell don my journalistic flak jacket equip my 22 caliber voice recorder and dive deep into the organs of a swollen complacent administration unseen since the days of the soviet union that's right I'm an undergrad 
in the post-grad common room. Portions of this program were pre-recorded. It didn't take long for me to find the soulless bureaucratic drone at the heart of this whole nightmarish conspiracy. Arnold Strait is the kingpin of the Soaz marking game, the godfather of grades, the tyrant of Turnitin, the Muammar Gaddafi of marking guidelines, the Bashar al-Assad of brazenly aggravating students. But in his own words... Hi, I'm Arnold Strait, a master's student, and I'm in charge of undergraduate essay marking at Soas. Boss man sits on high while the worker sweats, eh? Well, I, I should really say that I do it, as in I do all of the marking. It didn't take long for this corporate fat cat to begin ostentatiously divulging the horrendous details of his lucrative remuneration. Well, since you ask, I'm, I'm not strictly entitled to a salary as such, but I get 15% off my off my tuition fees, and I'm entitled to pick up the sandwiches at the end of the day. Why should we be paying full fees just so you can indulge your ravenous plowman's habit? Well, I mean, it's usually just ham and cheese. I mean, it's... Heartless meat eater! I mean, I'm, 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 I really don't feel like you're, you're getting to the, the heart of the issue here, which... The issue? Do I barge into your space and tell you how to do your job? Well, I mean, that's exactly what you're doing. Zionist! Back in the safety of the studio, I'm free to reflect on what I've learnt. Where are your essays, cry the teacher a mere day after deadlines. Where are our essays, retort the students a mere month later. Can this mad game of academic table tennis continue? With students working as much as five hours a day for three or more days a week, and so as retorting with naught but heartless contempt, is now the time to ask? Administrators of SOAS, time to go as... It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? Sketches written and produced by Lola Gillies Creasy and Gabriel Radonich. Performed by Gabriel, Lola and Robin Tyne. Interview written and produced by Alex. Special thanks to Daniel Luther for his participation.